Good morning, friends. Come on, you can do better than that. Good morning, friends. Or for our Welsh friends, Borada. Um, I think it might be politic. I've just been advised that over the years, Wednesday has become low Wednesday um, or slow Wednesday. Could we spend about 30 seconds contemplating absent friends? Let us come together in silence. Our world is too much, too much filled up with words, and shortly we will have plenty more to contend with. But for a brief space, let us focus and listen. Listen to the beautiful, resonating sound of a singing bowl. Mindful that when our spirits resonate with the creative spirit of life, we are in harmony with the nurturing and fulfilling power that creates us. Our theme for this week is Between the Dreaming and the Coming True. The Dreaming, not the dreams. The Dreaming and the Coming True. Our last two speakers concentrated on the dreaming. Nocturnal dreams that may provide us with better contact with our inner selves and perhaps with a deeper reality that we all participate in and how we might get better at this. And with daydreams that open us to possibilities and goals beyond society's norms, the norms that start to shape, restrict or channel our perceptions and expectations in our earliest days. How building a fulfilling life in the face of death has intrigued religious writers for centuries. Our hopes, goals, and even visions develop as we grow in experience and reflect on those experiences, hopefully in a supportive community. This morning I'm going to share my reflections with you, focusing on the coming true part of the theme. Of course, I will include some reflections on dreaming notably nightmares, but I'm less concerned with the sources of our dreams, hopes, and visions 
than I am with the processes we might engage in to test those visions and to work towards their realization. So the subtitle today is Realizing Our Dreams. In the course of this morning, I'll share with you some of my lifelong struggles. When I share my conclusions, please understand that I'm not saying that those who use different tools to realize their dream are wrong. Last week, I had decided to ask you to use a post-it to write briefly to a question. After Daniel's tour de force yesterday, I reconsidered that. But, but I have decided to ask you to do something. So if you would get one of the, they're actually not post-its. This is the problem when you pick something up that's been in your drawer for three years. You forget it doesn't have sticky on it. But we'll take care of that. But in, in the hymn books, in almost all hymn books, there are at least two of these. If anybody needs another one, please um, raise your hand. We'll get them to you. <clears throat> yeah. If they need it. Okay, I would like you, please to put down two names, two names on this pink note. The two names are of your favorite heroes. Your favorite heroes. H-E-R-O in the singular. Number one and number two, or number three and number four. They can be real or fictional. And next to their respective names, I would like you to put no more than about three of the qualities that you most associate with your heroes or heroines. I believe we're sort of doing away with female words that don't actually have a need to be female. So female heroes too. Words like love, honesty, sensitivity, strength, integrity, grace, beauty, or whatever. So just take a minute, maybe two minutes to do that. And then when you're finished, if you could pass them in towards the center, uh, we'll, we'll pick them up. And my assistant over here will put them up on the windows. Okay, I'm not going to do Daniel's thing of actually speaking to each of them. I, I'm not as, as flexible and well-prepared as that. So if you would do the, the two names of your favorite heroes, real or fictional. You may notice that these, well, they're not post-its, are they? They're notelets. These notelets themselves reflect a Unitarian dream. The Millennium Fund, which hoped to raise 1,000 pounds each from 1,000 Unitarians over four years. That would be five pounds a week. Hardly a massive sum, even 15 years ago. In the event, I think that about 200,000 pounds was raised. Much less than hoped, but there's still a bit of cash in the pot for qualifying projects. 
I do this exercise with you because I believe, and I firmly believe, that it is through people embodying values that we best learn our own values. I sometimes think of a fridge magnet I once saw that went straight to my heart. It read, If you can't be a good example, you'll have to be a terrible warning. (laughs) You can learn quite a bit about a society or a community by finding out about their heroes and villains. So maybe we'll take a few minutes towards the end to have a look at the collective heroes of this community. Are we ready? Okay, could you pass them in towards the center, please, along the row? is something you've not thought about before. I'm just, you know, somebody asked me who my ten best heroes were. I could probably rattle off the first five anyway. Okay, I'm going to start this morning not with a story, but with a reflection for children of all ages. And Ilaria is someplace. I saw I saw I saw her coming in. Well there she is. And Eliza. Right. We've not had much opportunity to chat the past couple of days. But have you had a good time? <coughs> You've had some good luck to have two whole teachers to yourselves this year. I understand that last year the summer school had, quote, a lovely big gang of youngsters. <laughs> for the two teachers. You've been making pom-poms, which you showed me yesterday. Do you have a favorite pom-pom that you've made? The big one. The big one. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a favorite one? The first one. Right, that's good. Normally, I'd ask if you have any new friends from the planned activities, but instead, I'll ask if you have friends back home that you'll be glad to see when school restarts pretty soon. Well, yeah, that's for you back in Italy, isn't it? Yeah. You good to see your friends? It's good to have friends, yes. English is a very funny language. We use the same word, and I used it in every sentence when I was talking to you, just about. We use the same word, have, when we talk about Having a good time, having luck, having teachers, having youngsters, having something that's favorite, having pom-poms, and having friends. Now, not all languages do this. Some languages speak very differently about having things or having friends. The way we talk can actually shape the way we think. 
And this shaping can be so strong, we aren't even usually aware of it. Do you know why it might be good to have a different way to say, I have a pom-pom or I have a friend? Is it in Italian? Do you use the same word? They do, right? They do it in several languages, but not all. Well, there is a key difference. To have a friend, you have to be a friend. Well, to have a pom pom, you don't have to be a pom pom. (laughs) 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 To have a friend really means to have a certain kind of relationship. It's more or less mutual. Friendships can't stay unbalanced for long before some new balance point is needed. This might mean friendship cooling down and growing apart. Or it might mean getting to a deeper level and closer by communicating with each other. So I'll leave this reflection with a thought that every time someone feels they are being treated like a thing, being manipulated, being used, a barrier is put up in the relationship. We don't have friends the same way we have cheese sandwiches. Before the children leave with their teachers, I'd like to share some thoughts about one of my heroes. I suppose technically it's two. A hero I have had since I was very young. My special person has inspired me as far back as I can remember. Anybody recognize this picture? Helen Keller. Helen Keller was born in the United States in 1880, that's 135 years ago, to a well-off family as a normal, healthy baby. But when she was a year and a half old, her life very suddenly changed. An illness left her both blind and deaf. Almost overnight, she was locked into a strange existence where everything was black and silent. She could still feel and smell and taste, but the senses that most of us use to understand the world as we grow up were not working. I'll put a picture of Helen up here on the board as one of my heroes. To be both deaf and blind in those days was an almost hopeless task in terms of being more than an animal. Fortunately, her wealthy parents were able to keep her at home and not put her into care. And even more fortunately, they got a teacher for her who was able to break through the barriers in her mind. Her teacher was Annie Sullivan, also in the picture there, partially blind herself, 
and only 14 years older than Helen. Helen grew up to be a famous lady, doing things that nobody imagined, nobody imagined that a deaf-blind person would ever be able to do. She led a very full life, full of achievements, because teacher, as Helen referred to Annie, dedicated her life to being her constant companion and friend. At times I wonder if Annie should be my hero. <clears throat> and she is right now towards the top of my personal list. But when I was young, I didn't understand or appreciate how much she sacrificed for Helen. The dream of a deaf-blind child accomplishing so much is such a deep dream that my understanding is that it was only realized because of the deep commitment and sacrifice that was guided by intuitive skill. To a real extent, of course, for any of us, realizing our potential as children is only accomplished with the love and sacrifice of others, particularly parents. But Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan were remarkable women. So I suggest to you the first tool for realizing, that is making real, dreams. And that tool is sacrificial love. Let us now join in singing our hymn, number 181, <coughs> Wake Now My Senses, during which the children will go to their own program. Now later, we will be looking at Martin Luther King. And if you note some similarities between his thoughts and the hymn, it could be because the hymn's author, the Reverend Dr. Thomas Mickelson, is a noted scholar of King's theology and social ethics. Number 181, Wake Now My Senses. As you're able.
making real, a dream needs to be grounded in reality with judgments about resources, time, even, as I've pointed out, perceptions. But reality is richer and much more complex than we can experience directly with our limited senses. The scientific method is the best method we have for determining the truth of something. But as Unitarians, we may have too rosy a picture of what science can tell us. Why do I say this? Partly a matter of perception and partly a matter of self-deception. Let's take perception first. Both my grandson and his grandmother's father are colorblind. We all are, in fact, colorblind compared to bees who can see into ultraviolet colors and see things on flowers that are invisible to us. Scientists use and develop tools to increase their ability to perceive. From microscope to telescope to radio telescope, from X-ray machine to electron microscope. As great as science is in describing and explaining the world around us, there is a real perceptual problem because best scientific calculations indicate that in our observable universe, that is, the universe perceivable using all these sophisticated devices. Only 5% is, in fact, observable. 26 is something, 26% is something called dark matter, which can sort of be seen, not seen, inferred by third hand through gravitational effects, sort of, 
And 68%, more than two-thirds, is something called dark energy. Now, both of these things, dark matter and dark energy, cannot be seen, heard, tasted, nor even smelt. But let's not worry too much about changing the universe. Let's stick with what we can see around us. Surely we can trust scientists to give us accurate information and reliable theories and explanations from their peer-reviewed experiments. Well, leave aside for a minute the distorting effects of money in the system, where the equipment and the protocols are getting so expensive that only big business and universities can afford to play this game. And the actual data is routinely withheld from other scientists on commercial competition grounds so that duplicate experiments by other scientists so important to the scientific method are often impossible to conduct. But it gets worse. Trust me, I have some understanding of these things. Analytical studies are now showing that the measure of statistical confidence for significance, that is, the likelihood that the results are not just due to chance, is often set low enough that it is possible for unconscious design and data judgments to affect findings. A great deal of caution and humility needs to be exercised when relying on studies. And this is before the popular headline-hungry press simplifies and distorts results at the public reporting stage. This is not to say that the scientific method isn't valid. It is just that real science is difficult. And results are almost always more tentative than lay folk appreciate. Moving from dreaming to reality is more complex than we often think. On the other hand, some of the grandest visions to have been pursued in recent generations have been scientific. From putting someone on the moon to sending the Near Horizons mission to Pluto to the ongoing attempts to eradicate polio and malaria and other diseases. So we come to my second tool for moving from dreaming to reality. A strong caution in using data and to represent the scientific quest. I put up one of the latest pictures of Pluto. Let's have the first reading. When I'm in need of inspiration, I have a particular, relatively small book I go to. It's not the only one I use, but it's the one I go to most often. It's The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. 
This is his, his this is his passion on this is his passage on reason and passion. And the priestess spoke again and said, Speak to us of reason and passion. And he answered, saying, Your soul is oftentimes a battlefield upon which your reason and your judgment wage war against your passion and your appetite. Would that I could be the peacemaker in your soul, that I might turn the discord and the rivalry of your elements into oneness and melody. But how shall I, unless you yourselves are also the peacemakers, nay, the lovers of all your elements? Your reason and your passion are the rudder and sails of your seafaring soul. If either your sails or your rudder be broken, you can but toss and drift, or else be held at a standstill in mid-seas. For reason, ruling alone is a force confining, and passion, unattended, is a flame that burns to its own destruction. Therefore let your soul exalt your reason to the height of passion, that it may sing, and let it direct your passion with reason, that your passion may live through its own daily resurrection, and like the phoenix, rise above its own ashes. Among the hills, when you sit in the cool shade of the white poplars, sharing the peace and serenity of distant fields and meadows, then let your heart say in silence, God rests in reason. And when the storm comes, and the mighty wind shakes the forest, and thunder and lightning proclaim the majesty of the sky, then let your heart say in awe, God moves in passion. And since you are a breath in God's sphere, and a leaf in God's forest, you too should rest in reason and move in passion. Gibran expresses what for me is a very useful, if not essential tool, for realizing dreams. A life with both passion and reason held in dynamic balance. Where this balance will be for any personality and any vision is partly a matter of temperament and partly a matter of resources. Resources including spiritual resources. Insight, discipline, commitment. Since we vary in temperament and in insight and in discipline, this balance will normally be achieved in community. A community of those dedicated to realizing the same dreams. And this leads to my third tool. The corollary of this for me is that our personal visions and dreams have to be collaboratively worked into the community dreams, hopes, and visions. You can be a closet fanatic, but don't act fanatically. Well, let's hear another story, this time a story set in a fantasy world. 
somewhat like our world of 900 years ago, but with some key differences, like the world being flat instead of round, and the sun actually going around the earth. I speak of the disc world of Terry Pratchett. This reading is, you know, by the way, he died just recently uh, with Alzheimer's. This is from his book, The Hog Father. For for those who don't know, death is a personification in this series. And he gets more and more human as the series goes along. The Hog Father is the equivalent of our Santa Claus. Oh, I'm in England, aren't I? Your Father Christmas. In the book, he's called Hogfather because he comes on hog watch night, bringing presents for the children. But Santa Claus is being threatened by a hired assassin. And Susan, a human who is, it's a long story, but she is a step grandchild of, or an adopted grandchild, uh, grandchild of death. She has been involved in a monumental struggle to save Santa Claus, or Hogfather. In the course of the story, she and others are told that if the assassin is successful, the sun will not rise again. Death, wearing a red suit, if you can imagine a skeleton, wearing a red suit, filled in for Santa, delivering presents, and saying, ho, 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 for much of the book. And Susan, his adopted granddaughter and some friends, had to rescue and save the hog father. So they do that. And towards the end of the book, they have their conversation as they watch the hog father sledge off after being saved. I remember hearing said Susan distantly, that the idea of the Hogfather wearing a red and white outfit was invented quite recently. No, it was remembered. Now the Hogfather was a red dot on the other side of the valley. Now, tell me, what would have happened if you hadn't saved him? Yes, the sun would have risen just the same, yes? No. Oh, come on. You can't expect me to believe that. It's an astronomical fact. The sun would not have risen. It's been a long night, Grandfather. I'm tired, and I need a bath. I don't need silliness. The sun would not have risen. Really? Then what would have happened, pray? A mere ball of flaming gas would have illumined the world. They walked in silence for a moment. Ah, trickery with words. I would have thought you'd have been more literal-minded than that. I am nothing if not literal-minded. Trickery with words is where humans live. All right, I'm not stupid. You're saying that humans need 
fantasies to make life bearable? Really? As if it were some kind of pink pill? No. Humans need fantasy to be human. Tooth fairies? Hawk fathers? Little angels? Yes. As practice. You have to start out learning to believe the little lies. So we can believe the big ones? Yes. Justice. Mercy. Duty. That sort of thing. They're not the same at all. You think so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, and yet, you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some, some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. Yes, but people have got to believe that. Or what's the point? My point exactly. There is a place where two galaxies have been colliding for a million years. Don't try to tell me that's right. Well, yes, but people don't think about that. Correct. Stars explode. Worlds collide. There's hardly anywhere in the universe where humans can live without being frozen or fried. And yet you believe that a bed is a normal thing. It is a most amazing talent. Talent? Oh, yes. A very special kind of stupidity. You think the whole universe is inside your heads. You make us sound mad. No. You need to believe in things that aren't true. How else can they become? There are those who hold that it is not the job of the church community to be involved in social responsibility. I disagree. And I remember as a secondary school student challenging my Sunday school teacher in the Christian Science Church I attended then as to why the church hadn't done any social action work since the war when refugee relief was undertaken. I was told that it was the responsibility of individuals to do this rather than the church as a whole. We get that perspective in our Unitarian churches on occasion too. I disagreed with the Sunday school teacher and I disagree with my fellow Unitarians who take this stance. But I did accept the implied challenge to do something myself. As I had just been able to buy a tape recorder with summer savings, I contacted the Chicago Blind Society and for the next couple of years regularly read books onto tape for blind students. This was in the days of spool-to-spool tapes, great big spools if you were lucky and you wanted to get more than about half an hour. It was a real... It was mess, mess. I also met with these blind people once a month to read and discuss the contents of their books and in the process learned to write grade one braille. I also learned, to my surprise, that most blind people are not born that way. Disease, war, and accidents being much more common causes 
than genetics. Eventually, I came to see the serious dimension of religion as part of a balancing and payback of life's bounty. Difficult though life was for me, and it was at that age, I could see and therefore had an obligation to use my gift of sight. Life now, of course, appears more complex than it did in secondary school, and I have to choose how best to use my energy and gifts from a wide range of responsibilities. But I am convinced that our religious communities exist to serve, not merely to educate and motivate. And I agree with James Luther Adams' social ethics perspective on the service dimension of our beloved religious community. To see something of the divine in everyone we meet is to be concerned to help them develop their divine potential. My children have taught me the pain of perceived injustice is learned so young, that's not fair, when they can hardly even mouth the words. It can be considered innate. And we have a responsibility to develop this in children rather than corrupt or kill it. And if justice isn't built into the fabric of existence, and there's not much evidence that it is, then it is our job as a human community to build it into our community. So the next fourth tool in our toolbox is to realize that to do nothing will not, in the long run, bring about any dream worth pursuing because it will not come about by the unassisted development of the physical world. I sometimes think of this as the motivational tool. Not all dreams and visions are worthy of dedicated pursuit. And some dreams are accurately described as nightmares, as are many lives and situations. We can see the crushing oppression of Jews and homosexuals and gypsies in the 1930s and 40s. The plight of Palestinians for two generations of women and homosexuals in much of Africa and Asia, of military dictatorships in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and again, much of Asia, the dystopian futures awaiting North America and Europe, where the thrust of terrorism is pushing state surveillance and control up the political agenda. And we haven't even started on global warming earthquakes, floods, and tsunamis. Leaving to one side natural disasters like earthquakes and asteroid collisions, the nightmare scenarios linked directly to human activity require major efforts. I suggest, therefore, that moving from nightmare to vision and then to a humane reality needs the powerful fifth tool of universal equality, and equity. This can be expressed as civil liberty and human rights, where the process must take into account the need to move everyone in your vision, in human society, along the road to justice. I think Gandhi 
was expressing this tool and his talisman, which I imagine we all know in its short form. When you consider a dream or a policy, consider what its likely effect will be on the poorest of the poor. In this regard, consider the many civil rights campaigns in 1960s America. One of them led by the Nation of Islam, notably by their spokesperson, not their formal leader, but their spokesperson, Malcolm X. And one of them led by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to give him his full uh, moniker. There were others too, but those were two major ones. Both had their successes and failures. Both wanted to do away with the oppression of the black community by the white economic, political, and cultural powers. Both men were assassinated in the 1960s. Malcolm X, who had a vision of separation and racial hatred, was killed by members of the Nation of Islam after his experiences of racial equality in Islam, in Africa, and the Middle East, which led him to rethink his views about white people. When he was killed, Martin Luther King paid tribute to him and his efforts on behalf of blacks. While Malcolm X's analyses of the situation were clear and accurate, the active violence and hate of the nation's leaders that is, the Nation of Islam's leaders, in response to white oppression, intensified the fears and hate within large sections of the white community. In contrast, King's vision was of a universal solution, one that would free the white community of its racism and prejudice at the same time as the black community achieved its freedom. King's approach was not always successful. It demanded a high degree of discipline and sacrifice that was difficult to achieve. But King's campaign inspired whites as well as blacks. Not all whites, of course. Not only was he assassinated, his ability to inspire blacks threatened the establishment. By definition, powerful whites. And he was tracked hostilely and secretly by the FBI. But his dream, his vision, stands as a dream still progressing towards reality. And I've chosen a picture of him in a prison mugshot. He went to prison, I think, 13 times. So those are some of my heroes. We've got a few minutes now. I'm going to go over and read some of those things. 
won't mention any names if I mean people sign if they signed any. Let's see what we got. Allison Gymnastics Coach. <coughs> kind, persistent, supportive. Natalie, who's a vet, kind, funny, and caring. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, honest and forgiving. My grandmother, patience, love, generosity. Oscar Schindler, brave, compassionate, flawed. Albert Einstein, intelligent. Eccentric. Polly Tongan. Journalist. Her honesty inquiring mind challenging the unjust in society via The Guardian. Any questions, etc. And Buddha. Obvious, really. Yes. Desmond Tutu. Courage, humor, and truthfulness. Maya Angelou. Honesty, lyricism, strength. Michelangelo, creativity, strength, persistence. Leonardo da Vinci, grace, artistic, inventiveness. E. Davis, love, integrity, strength. Eleanor Roosevelt, strong, determined, compassionate. Wayne Rooney. Very skillful footballer. <laughs> <laughs> Another from my Angela. Yeah. Right. Well, that gives a little bit of a flavor. It would be actually interesting, I don't know if I'll have time to do it, but to actually make a list of the names. Not necessarily all the, the comments, but the list of the names. It, it actually is helpful, I think, because I do believe that a community's heroes tell you an awful lot about the community's values, as well as believing that that is the best way to learn about values. So we're still with Martin Luther King Jr. And we're now going to hear part of his famous 1963 speech at the Lincoln Memorial to a crowd of a quarter of a million people 75 to 80 percent of them black. Many other, I think 13 other, civil rights leaders spoke that day on that occasion as well. But it is his speech which is remembered exactly 52 years ago this Friday. It will be followed by Aretha Franklin singing, I Dreamed a Dream and I will try quietly to pass out sheets to you while you listen to this. Well, to the music anyway. I still have a dream. Yes. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Yes. I have a dream that one day yes. this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that 
the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi a state sweltering with the heat of injustice sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today.
Tell him what you're going to tell him. Tell him. Tell him what you told him. <laughs> Preaching class one. <laughs> if we're going to make dreaming reality, we need tools. And I've suggested five tools. Loving sacrifice. A strong caution in data. We need a balance between passion and reason. As I said, you can be a closet fanatic, but don't act fanatically. The fourth, to realize that to do nothing will not in the long run bring about any dream worth pursuing. And finally, universal equality and equity. Everyone needs to be moved along the road of justice. So I thank you for your attention. I hope it's been helpful. You've been cheated out of 10 minutes, but I hope you will find a profitable way to use that time. Thank you.